0: our church has a great past. Your presence here this morning is in some way a testimony to that fact. In fact, many churches have good pasts. My question this morning, though, is slightly different. Will the church have a future? If you don't come from this church, what about the church where you come from? Will your church have a future? Or to put the same question another way, will the future have a church. Last year the Sunday Telegraph, the Saturday Telegraph sorry, ran with a uh, headline churches on road to doom. British churches will be well on the way to extinction by 2040 with just two percent of the population attending church. According it said to a new report the study paints a grim picture of a demoralized church struggling against the forces of secularism. Other reports suggest that the decline is even more rapid. Not the last decade, but the decade before last, church attendance declined 13%. In the last decade, it declined a further 22%. We are hemorrhaging like we have never known. There are some churches, though, that are breaking the mould and growing. In fact, globally, the picture is much better. Christianity is often overlooked as the fastest-growing faith in our world today. But in the West in general, and in the UK in particular, we are bleeding almost quite literally to death. Others do talk with more optimism about churches that are recovering uh, confidence even here in the UK. They're capturing the spiritual hunger in our nation and seeing a renaissance in their worship and life. This is certainly true. And we hear some exciting stories about how the church has experienced growth and renewal. Could the tide be turning? So on the one hand, serious decline. On the other hand, fresh glimpses of life and hope. What will be our story? What will be our story here at Burlington? In 2020, will the last person left be asked to close the door and turn off the lights? Or will we be bigger and stronger than we've ever been? Surprisingly, the choice is ours. You say, how can the choice possibly be ours? What can we do if people won't come anymore? What can we possibly do if people aren't interested anymore? If they don't come, we're stuffed. And then Christians get all whingy. Ever known a Christian to be whingy? We moan that the world is full of bad people. They just don't want to come to church anymore. How come they're not interested? How come they don't come? Don't they know how important it is? And so we can sit around moaning that our church is struggling and it's all their fault. If they would come, if only they would come, our churches would be full miserable pagans. But it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The question is not what's wrong with them that they don't come anymore. The question is what's wrong with us? But they don't come anymore why do thousands of people go to the car boot sale on a Sunday morning at Portman Road but only hundreds of people come to church what's wrong with us is a car boot sale a more profitable experience than coming to church on a Sunday morning well that's what many people think a car boot sale for heaven's sake we're being beaten by a car boot sale have you ever tried to describe a car boot sale to an alien It's like this, you tell them. You want to clear up your house to create a bit more space. So you gather together all your tat and you shove it into the boot of your car. But instead of doing the honourable thing, which is to go straight to the tip, you go to the car boot sale and you sell your tat to other people. But while you're there selling your tat, you remind yourself that not only is everybody else's grass greener than yours, their tat is more interesting than yours. So you buy it. And you replace your old tat that was in your boot with the new tat that you've bought from other people. You take your new tat home and put it in the place where your old tat was. A car boot sale. We're being beaten by a car boot sale. What's wrong with us? And for many, many people, it's a more fulfilling way to spend a Sunday morning. Why do people choose to mow their lawn? Why do people choose to wash their car? Instead of joining us to worship the living God and to experience the dynamic of his forgiveness and the power to live in a new kind of way. There is though a natural law in the universe. And the natural law is this, that people in the dark gravitate towards the light. As human beings we have a natural preference to be in the light rather than in the dark few years ago I was in Kenya visiting the Happy Home orphanage that we prayed for earlier on and it's lovely that Georgia Kohler is uh, with us here this morning. And uh, we were there a few years ago. It's way out in the country on the western side of Kenya. Access by car is almost impossible. There's no electricity and no running water. The only thing that worked was my mobile phone until the battery died. At night it was pitch black. No street lights. No lights in the distance from the city. Nothing. Except each night they would light two oil lamps they would put one at the front of the compound in a room and one in a room at the back of the compound during the day people were spread out all over this compound of wooden rabbit warren like huts but at night time everyone gathered around the light either at the front or the light at the back that's what people do they gravitate to the light if you are in a tunnel you move instinctively towards the light you can see at the end. If you are lost in the country and you see a light in the distance, only a fool turns round and walks the other way. Like a moth is drawn to a flame, and like the plants in your living room stretch themselves towards the window, we gravitate towards the light. What on earth has that got to do with church? Well, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. I believe with all my heart that when the church is truly the light that Jesus intended us to be, then people will come. The true light in this dark world will be an irresistible force. You see, people are fed up with darkness. When the light shines, they will gather to it, embrace it, gladly be warmed by its glow. So again, Jesus said, whatever you do, let your light shine before men. Why? So that they may see your good works and then what will happen? They will praise your Father in heaven. Let your light shine that others might praise God. If we live in a world where many are not praising him, could it just be because the light's not shining? Many people have settled for car boot sales and mowing their lawn because the light has not been on in the church. It's time for the light to shine. And after we've sung our next hymn, I want to share with you five values that I believe every church needs. If you're from Burlington, this church needs it. If you're not, your church needs it. Five values that all of us need to be the light to which people will be drawn. Let's stand and sing the great truth of the gospel together. Please be seated, everybody. Well, the first letter of light is L. It means being a church that is loving. A church that is loving. We are living in a love-starved world. Fewer people are getting married, yet the divorce rate is still rising, so less people are finding permanent love and less people are able to sustain it. Increasingly, relationships are transient and temporary. And so many more people are finding themselves living alone. As a result of these loosening of relationships, Britain is planning to build 4.5 million new homes over the next 10 years, even though our population is static, if not slightly declining. England's green and pleasant land is not going to be so green and pleasant. Why? Because we can't get on with each other anymore. Yet people are as desperate as ever to be loved. It's the single greatest longing in all of us. From the cradle to the grave, our deepest need. There is no one in this room, however old you are or wherever you come from, there is no one in this church who is indifferent this morning about whether they are loved or not. And week after week, people sit in my study and they pour out their lives, their pains, their hurts, their disappointments, their regrets. And every single time, it's the same question lurking deep behind those issues. Do I really matter? Am I really loved? I don't want to be anybody. I want to be somebody. And that's the difference only love can make. If success could deal with these deep longings in our hearts, then we wouldn't have Julia Roberts saying this. Julia Roberts is successful. The picture you can see on the screen is an image of her success. But don't be fooled. Listen to her heart. I have felt incredible loneliness in my life. I've known great despair. And what is the point of having a great job or something spectacular if you have no one to share it with? Unless you have someone, it's pointless it's vapor. It's the same cry all over. And I guess it's worse for successful people. If you don't feel very successful, and people feed that back to me, they say, well, if I was successful, then I wouldn't feel like this. Well, pity then those people who are successful and still feel like it that Richard Higgins, the crime writer, I think it was, he was on the radio and uh, uh, he was saying just a few weeks ago, he was asked the question, what one bit of advice do you wish you were given when you were 18? And he said this, he said, I wish someone had told me that there is nothing at the top of the ladder. We think we want success, but when we get it, we realise that what we were really after was not success, but significance. Significance only comes from knowing you are loved. We're all wired that way. It is loving that makes me significant. It's love that makes me somebody. It's love that empowers me to flourish. Come with me to Boston at the turn of the last century and meet little Annie. Annie was a patient in an asylum for those designated seriously mentally retarded. Neither the language nor the practice of political correctness was known in those days. Annie was by far their worst case. She was totally unresponsive towards any other human being. She was completely locked in her own world. She was eventually confined to a solitary cell in the basement. They'd given up on her as hopeless, left as good as dead. Except, that is, for a beautiful young Christian lady who was just imbued with the love of God. And she worked at the asylum. And whilst officially they had abandoned Annie... She would spend her lunch hours down in the basement in front of little Annie's cell. She would read to her and pray for her. How she prayed that the love of God would free her from her prison of silence. Day after day she read and day after day she prayed, but there was no response. Months went by, still nothing. She tried talking to Annie, but it was like talking to an empty cell. The only response was the echo of her own voice. She brought little tokens of food, but nothing was ever touched. Then one day, incredibly, a cake was missing from the plate, which this loving woman retrieved from little Annie's cell. Enthused, she continued to read and pray for her, and eventually the little girl began to answer her through the bars of her cell. It was enough, a sign of hope. The Christian lady was able to persuade the doctors upstairs that little Annie needed a second chance, and they brought her up out of the basement. It was to everybody's amazement that after two years, little Annie was told that she could leave the asylum and begin to live a normal life. The incredible thing was, though, that she chose not to. She was so grateful for the love that she'd received that she decided she would stay and help others in the same way. Nearly half a century later, the Queen of England held a special ceremony to honour one of America's most inspiring women, Helen Keller. When Helen Keller was asked of what she would attribute her own success and overcoming the dual handicaps of blindness and deafness in such an outstanding way, Helen Keller replied, If it hadn't been for Anne Sullivan, I would not be here today. Anne Sullivan, who had tenaciously believed in a hopeless deaf and blind girl, Helen Keller was little Annie. Who's going to put the transforming power of love back into our society if the church imbued with the love of God does not do it? Where are people going to find others that will love them and care for them and stand with them, weep with them, laugh with them and quite literally love people back to life? You see, people are desperate for love. On the outside we all look normal, but inside so often we feel like little Annie, all locked up. We don't believe in ourselves. We don't have confidence in ourselves. We don't feel we're worth very much. We don't feel very valued. Will Burlington be a place where we will love people back to life? Will your church be a place where you will love people back to life? If we become a church like that, I guarantee you people will come. For love like that will be an oasis in a love-starved desert, a spring of life-giving water in the midst of this dry, barren, parched land of loneliness and isolation. More than ever, people are desperate to belong if only the church had been there for them. All this means that we've got to become a church that's involved, L for love, I for involvement. We've become so individualistic that we are barely involved in the lives of others anymore. We can put men on the moon, but we can't get across the street to reach our neighbour. Many live in streets where we know increasingly less about those who are living around us. Even within families and marriages too, the separateness is frightening. The film, Mr and Mrs Smith, captured this truth well when Jane, played by Angelina Jolie, uh, said of their marriage... There's this huge space between us and it keeps filling up with everything we don't say to each other. And what has happened between neighbours and what has happened within homes has happened between church and community also. Physically, the church might still be near the people around them, but there is today a huge gulf between the church and the community around it. Why? Because the church has, by and large, just kept doing the same old thing, whilst the community around it has changed beyond all recognition. Just think with me about how society has changed. Hands up if you were born before 1940. Let's give these people a round of applause. They've been at it a lot longer than us. Well done, everybody. But think with me about how society has changed since 1940. For those born before 1940, you were born before televisions, before penicillin, polio shots, frozen food, Xerox, plastic, contact lenses, videos, frisbees and the pill. You were born before radar, credit cards, split atoms, laser beams and ballpoint pens, before dishwashers, tumble dryers, electric blankets, air conditioners, drip dry clothes and before a man walked on the moon. You got married first, and then lived together. You thought fast food was what you ate in Lent, a Big Mac an oversized raincoat, and crumpets something you had for tea. You existed before house husbands, computer dating, dual careers, and when a meaningful relationship meant getting along with the cousins, and sheltered accommodation was where you waited for the bus. You were born before daycare centers, group homes, and disposable nappies. You never heard of FM radio, tape decks, electric typewriters, artificial hearts, word processors, yogurt, and young men wearing earrings. For you, time sharing meant togetherness. A chip was a piece of wood or a fried potato. Hardware meant nuts and bolts, and software was not a word. Before 1940, made in Japan meant junk. The term making out referred to how you did in your exams. Stud was something that fastened a collar to a shirt, and going all the way meant staying on a double-decker bus to the bus depot. Hallelujah. (laughs) Pizza, McDonald's, and instant coffee were unheard of. In your day. cigarette smoking was fashionable. But grass was mown, and coke was kept in the coal house, and a joint was a piece of meat you had on Sundays, and pot was something you cooked in. Rock music was a grandmother's lullaby. Eldorado was an ice cream. A gay person was the life and soul of the party. And A's just meant beauty treatment or help for someone who's in trouble. How has society changed? And the church pumps out the same old stuff. And because it's done that... It's moved from being right at the centre of community, a church in the middle of the village, a church at the heart of community life, yet as societies change and lifestyles have altered, the church has gone, we're not listening, we're not listening. And we've gone from being right at the middle to right on the edge. And often the most important thing has been our internal squabbles about whether we should sing choruses or not. Should we let that drum in church after all and whether Mrs. Jones's son should really be allowed in church with hair like that. That's the son's hair. Mrs. Jones's blue rinse never seemed to bother anybody. <laughs> church has completely lost touch with the world around it. The trouble is now, we could be the most loving community on the planet, but who would know and who would care? We're just not involved anymore. We must reconnect. We must Get involved, or we'll die. Three times a year, we post leaflets to several thousand homes around our church, inviting them to special services, Christmas, Easter, and Harvest. Occasionally, one or two people come in response to our letters, and that always makes it worthwhile for us. A few weeks ago, though, we leafleted the same houses, and we said to them, Look, guys, our church is 150 years old. We're having a party. Would you like to come? And the reply came back, Yep, we love parties. We're in. We'll be there. And we were overwhelmed with people as they came in the hundreds. Why? Because we'd connected with them. A party is something people connect with. It's something they understand. In fact, parties are one of the icons of our age. Birthday parties, leaving parties, Christmas parties, silver wedding parties, Tupperware, jewellery, even Ann Summers have used parties to promote their products. So when we said we're having a party, they said, great, we love parties, we'll be there. They were in effect saying to us, we haven't got a clue when you write to us inviting to your services. What on earth are they all about? But if you're having a party, we'll come. But that wasn't for me the best thing about that 150th party. Better still was watching what was happening as hundreds of people were welcomed into our church. It was watching you. You chatting with people, finding out about them, listening to their stories, sharing something with them, even sharing a little about your own experience in the life of this church. We were getting involved. We were building bridges into people's lives and in a lovely way we've already seen just a little bit of fruit about what happens when you build bridges into other people's lives. We've got to get involved to make that connection with people. Why has Tiddlywinks and Toy Library been the most successful adult evangelistic strategy in our church over the last five years? Why? Because week by week we've got involved. Just being there, loving, listening, befriending, supporting, caring and encouraging. We need everybody to get involved in that kind of way. And it means different things for each of us. In different contexts you see what about the person who is last to leave the office at night and back there first thing in the morning before anybody else why because they don't want to be at home get involved what about the older person who's lost their lifelong partner and sees no future for themselves get involved the mum who's bringing up two small children it's 2 30 in the afternoon and she still hasn't had a conversation an adult conversation with anybody all day get involved The stressed, the lonely, the bereaved, the anxious, the hurting, get involved. You say, but I don't know what to say. Let me let you into a secret. Nine times out of ten, you don't have to say anything. You just have to listen. And having listened, really listened, tried to understand and empathised, they will thank you for all that you said. You've made a connection. You've got involved. Kerry and I are still amazed by the people that wander into our house and just unload. Our kitchen walls have heard more life story than EastEnders. You don't know what EastEnders is, do you? EastEnders is a soap opera that's on the television midweek. It really pushes the boundaries to the limit. It does absolutely nothing for your soul. But of course, you wouldn't know because you're uh, committed to living the kingdom life. One evening, well, one evening, does people come into our house? One evening, one evening, carried order ordered a pizza. And the pizza boy comes, and on the doorstep, he starts unloading the whole of his life before handing over what was by then a very cold pizza. You see, we live in a world where people are desperate to make connections, desperate for others to be involved, but sometimes the church has been too busy singing its hymns and polishing its views. If we want to be that light to which people are drawn, we've got to love, and we've got to get involved. Let's move now to the other end of the word light, and uh, uh, Alan I is like one set of bookends that holds the church up. Now I'm going to move on to H and T. Are you still with me? You're really excited about being part of god's church great what better thing could we do truth you see a church that's truthful will be a light our task is to tell the truth to tell the truth that god loves every person and has a plan for their lives that he loved us even before the world was made we need to tell the truth that people in choosing to ignore god are lost And without hope. If you were lost and without hope, wouldn't you want somebody to tell you? Excuse me? We need to tell the truth. That Jesus is the only person who has come from God. And therefore the only person who can take us back to God. That Jesus is the only person who has conquered death. So he's the only person for us to trust with our lives in death. Every time the church stops telling the truth, the light goes out. The beginning of the last century was a frightening example of that. You see, in the 18th and 19th centuries, the church had flourished. There were great revivals led by household names such as Wesley, Wilberforce, Shaftesbury. The impact on society was massive and some of the laws we benefit from today were made during those times. But as we moved through into the 20th century, so the beginning of the 1900s, it all went terribly wrong. The dominant culture of that day was modernity. The belief that technology, progress, and rational thinking could cure the ills of humanity and answer the great riddles of life. So in order to appeal to this mindset, theologians, with tragic consequence, started changing the truth to try and make it more appealing to the modern man. So they began removing everything they didn't think fitted with the culture. So the miracles went, the virgin birth went, the resurrection went, just to name a few. It was as if the only part of the Bible that could stay was the maps at the back. The result, a powerless church. A church that stood for nothing and therefore fell for everything. You see, the power of God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been hearing about over these last few weeks. If you mess with that gospel, the church loses its power. And that's exactly what happened. And the decline in the church that I spoke about at the beginning of this message started way back then. And actually, I think if it hadn't been for two world wars, which kind of encouraged people to gather again around traditional values, the church would have hemorrhaged even quicker through the last century than it did. And we face today the same choice. Our prevailing culture is post-modernism. Modernism is definitely over. We are painfully aware that technology, the human rationale and the march of progress have been unable to cure the ills of humanity. Interesting enough, therefore, postmodernism is quite at home with the paranormal, the extrasensory, the spiritual appearances, The miracles of Jesus can happily come back in. It gives the gospel a kind of kudos. However... The main thrust of postmodernism, our prevailing culture today, is that we can't find one right, so nothing should be regarded as right for everyone. Something is only right if it's right for you. So if your lifestyle works for you, then it's right. And if your religion works for you, then it's right. If your secularism works for you, then it's right. We haven't got time this morning to drive a coach and horses through that fatal philosophy. But we must recognise the huge pressure that it creates for the church to conform to these values. For the church to accept that everybody's choice in life is right and therefore should not be challenged. It's creating great pressure on us to accept that whilst we get to God through Jesus Christ, others are perfectly free to get to Him their way or not to bother with Him at all. To our shame, there are parts of the wider church that under such pressure have sold out on this already. If we ever do that, the light in this place will go out quicker than a power cut. The power is in the gospel of Christ. People are lost. People are lost without God. Jesus, the only remedy, the only one who's died for sin and risen again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? because it's the power of God, what for? Salvation for all who believe. I for love, sorry, L for love, I for involvement, T for truthfulness, and then H for holy. The church that wants to be a light, that people will be drawn to, must be holy. You've heard me uh, say this verse from this place over and over again. Make every effort people of God to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. What does it mean? Simply it means being and becoming more and more like Jesus. The more we become like him, the greater his presence will be among us. The greater his presence will be among us, the more of his power will be at work through this church. And these days, People are looking for spiritual power. That's one of the characteristics of our postmodern world. The modern world dismissed all the things that were beyond them, the postmodern world is fascinated by them. The more like Jesus we become, the more his power will be visible and the more people will be fascinated by it. And Paul talked about worship in 1 Corinthians, about it being so full of the power of God that an outsider came in and said, wow, God must really be in this place. When was the last time that happened in your church? We get senses of it, which we should thank God for. Those times people come into our church and say, it feels different in here. I can sense something of God in this place. And we give him thanks for that. But don't you want to be part of a church where there is more of that week by week? Thanks, Chris. You and me together, hey? Holiness is the answer. If we start living like Jesus and taking that living very seriously... We will not be able to stop that sort of thing happening. Someone say hallelujah quick. The trouble with the word holiness is that it's been robbed by the pious and the religious. We think about holiness as being boring and lifeless, even dead. Yet one of the deepest emotions in the Bible associated with holiness is joy. You'd never get that impression from your average service now, would you? In fact, Jesus, he's talking about holiness, and this is what he says. I've told you this. Why? So that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Tell me, who in this sad nation, dubbed the Prozac generation, tell me who wouldn't be interested in a load more joy? People look at the church and they think, joy? Who's kidding who? There's a little boy in church and he's bored out of his mind and he notices a plaque on the wall just like that one over there with names on it. He says, Dad, what's that? And his dad says, that's the name of all the people who've died in the services. The little boy thinks for a while. He says, which? The morning or the evening? (laughs) Shame on us that we've packaged such a joyous truth in a such boring way. We've made this vibrant life difficult for people to accept. I tell you this though. A church that gets full on with Jesus. A church where Jesus is allowed to fill every part, to heal every wound, to forgive every sin. A church like that will have so much joy that they won't know what to do with it. And I tell you, people will come to a church like that. Do you know what? With love, involvement, truth, and holiness, the light will be so bright that people in darkness will come in their droves. The light, an irresistible force to all in the darkness. And the result? Growth. A church that's growing. One of the great things about BBC is that our appetite for growth has really increased in recent years. We're more passionate and committed to it than I've ever known. It's very easy, though, in church life not to talk about growth, especially when you're not growing. In fact, it's easy to become comfortable accepting of the fact that the church isn't growing. And so when we do talk about growth, it's never about numbers, it's always about other ways. But growth in numbers matters to God. We read that his heart is that no one should be lost, that no one should be left outside his kingdom, that no one should not experience what the Bible calls this glorious salvation. If the church had stopped growing, this church, when we were a hundred members, most of us here would never have been allowed in. At Burlington we count people because people count every single one and no one should be left outside sometimes we go walking in Rendlesham Forest one last story Have you got time for one last story we set off two adults four kids one dog imagine when we get back from walking around Rendlesham Forest we get back to the car and one of them's missing the dogs there that's a miracle in itself but one of the kids is missing This is what we don't say. Oh, well, we've got three healthy kids. Let's go home. We stay in that forest, believe me, until we've found our missing child. Take the strength of our feelings and multiply those feelings a thousand times and you're not even close to how God feels about every child of his that's lost in his world today. We count people because people count. Everybody counts. Everybody deserves to be found. It's not that quality doesn't matter. It's not quantity rather than quality, or even quality rather than quantity. Jesus wanted both. Look what he said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Literally, all people groups. Some of your Bibles translate it all peoples. In other words, every grouping that society can be made up of, go to them and make disciples. Teenagers, retired people, business people, homemakers, high flyers, midlife people, rich people, poor people, the sick, the healthy, the widow, the celebrity, anyone and everyone. Get as many as you can from all places and make them disciples. That's quantity. And then, teach them to obey a little bit? No. Teach them to obey everything. That's quantity quality. Jesus wants in this church and in your church lots of quality disciples. I'm going to say that again, and you're going to say amen as if you thought it up yourself. I can't remember what I said, but it's something like this. Jesus wants in this church and your church lots of quality disciples. Thank you. If you know anything about electronics... You know that if one pin doesn't work, the whole board goes down. No good this morning saying, well, we've got three out of five. We've got four out of five, even feeling pretty good. You need five out of five for the light to be on. And I'm confident about church. I'm confident about church because Jesus says, if we're true to our calling, he will build his church and the gates of hell. Will not even overcome it. And the most important word in that sentence is "my." Jesus says it's "my church." Our confidence is not in ourselves, doesn't rest on our own ability, our own merit, on, on our own merit, but on Jesus, that He will build his church through His people as we embody the values that He has for His church. A few years ago, I invited you to join with me to pray here at Burlington for a baptism every month. In this 150th year, it looks like we're going to do it. And the more we grow, excuse me, the more we grow, the more aware I am that it's not us, but Jesus. Here is our church text this year. And as I take the church text on board, I'm full of confidence. Why? Because firstly... It's about our God. And secondly, it's about our God who is able. And thirdly, it's about our God who's able to do what we ask. Fourthly, it's about our God who is able not just to do what we ask, but also what we imagine and dare not ask for. Fifthly, it's about our God who's able to do more than we ask or imagine. And sixthly, it's about our God who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And he does all that where? He does it through his power. And where is that power? It's in